Okay, Rosaria Butterfield, the author of three well-known books, including The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Just a minute. This is her book. <laughs> she's our neighbor. She's Kristen and I. She's our neighbor. A lot of you know that already. And she's our friend. And a few Sundays ago, she invited me to go on an evening event at a church in Raleigh. And the reason why we found that to be a good time is because uh, Sunday evenings is usually the time we get together. It's We're both just going crazy the rest of the week. And um, so, but this Sunday she was going to this event and she, we needed to catch up with each other and we needed to talk about some neighborhood events that we're planning during the holiday season as we drove there and we drove back. And Rosaria, blessedly for her, was not the speaker at this event. So she was thrilled just to get to attend and soak up some great Bible teaching. And afterwards, some folks who knew her uh, came up to say hi, and Rosaria would introduce me as her neighbor. But one person that did that had some history with Rosaria, and so she introduced me a little bit differently. And she told this person that I was the neighbor she had written about in The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she told me what her name was. And her friend looks at me and says, Oh, you are the Donna. (laughs) The Donna. And I just thought that was hilarious. The Donna. She asked, then she asked me the strangest question ever. It was strange to me. Probably made perfect sense to her. She said, How do you feel about being written about in Rosaria's book? And I was trying to tell her. I went on to say, Well, I don't feel anything. You see, Rosari is my neighbor, and she was just telling neighborhood stories, and then by that time, conversation went on in other directions and stuff. But the truth is, I don't think anything about it. I don't think about it at all. And as I was going through today's study in Colossians, I couldn't help thinking about that encounter that I had and that exchange because it brought to light how sometimes we can romanticize, and and I use that word uh, figuratively, uh, about people that we read in scriptures. Somehow they're less human and they become the Paul or the Peter. A step removed from us and not real. A character. A character and a story. And the passage we're reading today, it seems like a laundry list of personnel data, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It has nothing to do with us. So lots of people will skip this part of the letter. It seems it's just the end. And then they end their reading with verse 6 of chapter 4. But today, I hope to enhance your understanding of these people and to help you see just how real they are and to see how important Paul's Christian friends were to him and how important ours are to us. So who's who of Paul's friends, companions, and fellow laborers? There's about nine people listed here. I'm going to talk about four of them and perhaps you'll get to talk about more in your small groups. So this is from Colossians 4 verse 7. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He is a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. And though throughout scripture there's not a lot we can learn about Tychicus, 
He's mentioned five times, but just very briefly. However, even from the little bit that we know about him, what we do know is that Tychicus was the embodiment, embodiment, excuse me, of Christian faithfulness in his service to Christ and therefore in his service to Paul. Consider, just think about the long, perilous journey that he embarks on just to deliver these three letters. I say three letters because Paul gave him two letters and a postcard that he wanted to, to be delivered to this region. And he, so he had to carry these letters all the way from Rome to Laodicea and Colossae and then, uh, and also Hierapolis. Uh, and by the way, I thought it was so interesting that Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae are like 12 miles apart from each other. Doesn't that remind you of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel? <laughs> it's like a little triangle there. But by the time that he arrives, this is what he had done when he gets there. He will have crossed Italy on foot from Rome. He will have sailed across the Adriatic Sea. He will have crossed Greece and then sailed the Aegean Sea. And then he will have walked, after landing in Miletus, up the steep Lycus River Valley to Laodicea and Colossae. A little trip. (laughs) There's only one thing that prompts him to do this. His deep love for God as is witnessed in his faithfulness to obey. And we know that he labored with Paul for four years and that Paul calls him a beloved brother. He says he is a diaconus, or a servant, a deacon. And Paul says that he is a sundalos, a bondservant, like Paul. In other words, Paul sees Tychicus as a substitute for himself to this congregation of saints. Tychicus comes to them without a list of credentials like the false teachers did. No qualifications of higher learning. No great sermons. No seminary training. He came with the confidence and the commendation of Paul. And he came with grace from God. And true to his faithful service, we know that he successfully delivered these two letters, one to Ephesus and one to Colossae. And the postcard went to Philemon who was a member of the body of believers in Colossae. This postcard was all about Tychicus' traveling companion, Onesimus. And that's who we're going to talk about next, Onesimus. Onesimus is a friend who forgives because he's been forgiven. And he knows it. Colossians 4.9 I am also sending you Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. Onesimus, at this time, was the runaway slave of Philemon, who was a wealthy Christian that whose home was large enough to accommodate a house church in Colossae. He had stolen money from Philemon, and he had escaped to Rome. We don't know exactly how that happened, but he met Paul there, and he was converted by Paul there. Onesimus' story is a really powerful one. It's the story of the transforming love and forgiveness of Christ. The brief letter that Paul wrote to Philemon about him is a picture of forgiveness and its potential to redeem the forgiven. It's only 25 verses, and I hope that you'll get to read it. And if you do, Read it once as though you are Onesimus. 
and it will begin to unfold like your own story of forgiveness and redemption. Then read it a second time through the eyes of Philemon. Have you ever been wronged and challenged to forgive? And to release the shackles of your unforgiveness of the one who has harmed you? And then read it through a third time as though you are Paul. And you will become Onesimus' advocate, much like Jesus is ours. In his time and culture, the punishment for runaway slaves was often branding with a hot iron on his forehead. The letters F-U-G for the word, I can't say this, but it's Latin, so I'm going to mess up and say fugitivus. (laughs) Fugitivus? (laughs) Anyway, it means runaway. Or worse, the punishment could be execution by crucifixion or any other method that was applied by the master. Onesimus' name meant useful, and Paul appeals to Philemon to say that although he was useless when he ran away, Onesimus is now useful in Christ, and he has been changed from that mindset and character. From one to the other, he is a new creature in Christ. He's new. He's different. And if he's caused Philemon great loss, Paul asks Philemon to charge it to Paul's account. So what was the result of this? Onesimus was forgiven by Philemon, and he was established in the church at Colossae as a brother in Christ and sent back to Paul in Rome, as Paul had requested. Fifty years later, there's a letter or something written by the church father Ignatius, the pastor of the church in Smyrna, and he writes these words to the church in Ephesus, and he says, and we don't know if it's the same Onesimus, but I think it is. He says, I received, therefore, your whole multitude in the name of God through Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love, and your bishop in the flesh, who I pray you by Jesus Christ to love, and that you would all seek to be like him. Do you think forgiveness has had any effect on Onesimus' life? He has been transformed by the love of Christ and the power of God that is enabled when we forgive as he commands us. We unleash, we unshackle those individuals that we find so hard to forgive and we let the prisoner go free just like we've been set free. And the transforming power of the love of Christ Start with you. It will change you. And through your prayers, it will change them too. Let's look more closely at one more friend of of these friends and companions. And this is perhaps my favorite one. Epaphras. Epaphras? I don't know how you say his name. I'm going to call him Epaphras. He was a friend who prays like a warrior. Epaphras, this is what Paul says in verse 12, a member of your own fellowship and a servant of Christ Jesus sends you his greetings. He always prays earnestly for you, asking God to make you strong and perfect, fully confident that you are following the whole will of God. I can assure you that he prays hard for you and also for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. 
Epaphras is the reason that Paul has written to the body of Christ in Colossae in the first place, because he's traveled all that distance to Rome to talk with Paul about them and to counsel with Paul about this issue of false teachers. And it was Epaphras' very witness and ministry that introduced them to Christ in the first place. He passionately prays for them. And he exercises for them what I have come to describe as working prayer. Working prayer is very different from conversational prayer. It's the kind of prayer that participates in the will of God. God is the one who prays. What? God is the one who does the praying. Through you. When you participate. And when you engage in this kind of prayer. They ask, if you're engaged in this prayer, you will ask that his will will be done and that his kingdom will come into the lives and on the behalf of individuals and situations that you bring before God. This kind of prayer actually ushers these people into his throne room. You're bringing them in and you're laying their situations and their circumstances at his feet and beseeching him that he might work. It's kind of... It's kind of, it's the kind of prayer that takes time and it takes focus because the prayer is the work. It is. It is earnest. It is fervent. It feels like heavy lifting. Paul uses the word struggle to describe Paphos' prayer life and it indicates a big, a bit of agony in prayer. Creation groans, the spirit groans, and Paphos groans. As he prays, he contended prayerfully for the Colossians. His request for them to stand mature in Christ meant that he would kneel so that they would stand. The Paphras, a warrior in prayer. Hmm. Although Paul mentions not the nine people in his greetings, when we've got time to consider the character and backstory of only one more, and it's Aristarchus. Aristarchus was, you've heard the the phrase, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And this was Aristarchus. He was the embodiment of that little phrase. He was present. He did not desert Paul in the most stressful and dangerous of times. He was a Thessalonian that was converted during Paul's trip to Thessalonica. And then he went on to accompany Paul through Macedonia and Achaia. And he was there at Troas when the disciples came together on the first day of the week, despite the attempts made by Jewish opposition to stop the mission. That's in Acts 19, verse 20. Aristarchus and Gaius, and this is the big one, this would have sent me home. If this had happened to me, I'm like, I am out of here. But he, Aristarchus and Gaius, they were with Paul in Ephesus when the riot broke out big, horrible riot because of the the effect that the gospel was having on the economy. And the economy, as you will remember, and if you you studied this part, you'll remember that uh, Ephesus' big economy was based on the worship of Artemis, and they had a huge temple and a huge statue of Artemis and tons of people that made money, a whole union of people that made money making idols for them to worship at home, little home idols and other things. 
and Aristarchus uh, was attacked, uh, and Gaius, they were accosted by a mob. And the mob was made up of these union members who were losing vast amount of money as the gospel was taking in effect in Ephesus and people were destroying those little idols that they made and not buying anymore and starting to not go to the temple to worship uh, Artemis. And so that would be so scary. Try to imagine. And uh, so they were jailed just to protect them from the mob until the mob calmed down to all that fervor because it was all worked up anyway by the people in the union. They were trying to get Paul out and and all of his buddies, whoever they might be, and and Aristarchus and Gaius had been identified as such. Um, Aristarchus joined Paul on his voyage to Rome as a prisoner after Paul had been locked up in Caesarea for two years. And here in this letter to the Colossians, Paul called him his fellow prisoner, which literally translated means prisoner of war. What war? What war? Paul and Aristarchus were soldiers of Christ. And they were in prison because of that. Because they boldly presented the gospel and they encountered hostility and great opposition, as you can see. They were soldiers in a war. What impresses me about Aristarchus is that he was there for Paul. He faced those dangers and threats, and he remained a constant friend of Paul's. I've experienced a little bit of this with my friend Rosaria, because she's a controversial figure. She swims upstream of culture, and she's a lot like, she reminds me of Paul, because she used to swim along with the culture. She was a leader. She's the front salmon if she was swimming along with the culture and the head of women's ministries at Syracuse University. And then, just like Paul, like, what happened? You know? She had disciples. She had, she had it all. And then she's converted to Christ over a period of two years and she starts swimming upstream from the culture and boy, oh boy, did that hit the fan then. And what happens in my friendship to her is that there are a lot, she has a lot of critics, a lot. And those who criticize her, they criticize me because of my friendship with her. And that's what happened to Paul and his friends. Paul was a controversial figure in his culture. Many Christians are considered to be so today. And I think when I read the news, this is going to happen more and more and more because the very things we think and know and believe, it swims upstream of the culture. We're swimming in the other direction just by virtue of who we are. It's hard to swim upstream, isn't it? It really, really is. Sisters, how do we do this life in Christ? with a little help from our friends, with a lot of help from our friends. Christian friendship. I came across this article by Rachel, and I'm going to spell her last name because I can't say it, L-E-H-N-E-R. Lerner, Lerner, who knows, as I was considering Christian friendship and what it looks like in, in our lives. And her article is titled, 12 Characteristics of Christian Friendship. 
So for the sake of time, I'm only going to speak about a few of them, but I hope you get to read this article. I hope it's so much that I put it on your table. Please don't look at it now or you'll steal my thunder. You'll steal my thunder. Don't look now. Okay, thanks. Okay, okay. But take it with you when you go. Oh, gosh. Okay. And, uh, and, and, I, and then maybe in your small groups, you can consider these characteristics. But I chose these because, surprisingly, her scripture references were from Colossians on most of these. And so, and also, they made me think of these different, these four guys that I picked out from the list of nine. Number one was a shared hope in the gospel. This is us. But two friends that base their hope on Jesus has monstrous implications for the relationship. Agreement about something as bedrock as the soul is foundational to every aspect that makes a spiritual friendship unique. And this is her scripture reference for this. Colossians 1, verses 3 through 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word, the gospel. And then I chose number three, a framework for forgiveness. Christian friends have a model for true forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And they have already experienced the greatest forgiveness possible, the costly pardon of God the Father that's made possible in his Son. We can never claim a greater cost than the one paid for by Jesus. And so we willingly follow in his footsteps. And she uh, cites this scripture, excuse me, turn the page here, Colossians 3, 12, 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also forgive. And number six, true generosity. Friends who agree the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof are called to be free and generous with their money and possessions, and there should be no shame in asking and no pride in bestowing that which is not ours to begin with. We cannot love our stuff, guys. We can't love our money more than we love each other. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need, yet closes his against him, how can God's love abide in him? That's First John. And um, my family and I, I'm going to talk to you about this. We really experience this in our dark, dark times. And, uh, and most recently... I experienced this with a beloved sister in Christ. Uh, when we didn't have money to send Hope to college, uh, this person gave us a generous gift. Granted, it was it wasn't it was, I, and we didn't expect this person to come up with the college money. But just that act of generosity was life changing. I mean, we we cried at the generosity of that. 
transforms us. And it makes us let go of our stuff. Encouragement number seven, to stand strong. A Christian friend will not counsel you to give up that to which the Lord is asking you to hold fast. The world may counsel you to look to your heart for guidance, but a Christian friend should stand with you side by side, pointing you to the truth of the gospel and to the immovable God whose love for you never changes. I depend on my Christian friends to help me do that. I depend on them to help me hold fast to the gospel. And this from Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And the last one that I chose, the rule of peace. Christian friends want peace to reign. They are peacemakers. They are peacekeepers. The call to unity and love should override self-interest and personal grudges and hurt. Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. So we should be eager to extend the olive branch to those who are called by Jesus' name. And Colossians. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. That's a state of being. In your small groups today, you might want to consider this question. What characteristic do you value most in a Christian friend? Conclusion. In conclusion. Being the tough, independent, and self-sufficient Midwesterner that I am from Indiana, it's been a struggle for me to embrace and participate in Christian friendship like this. It is so risky, but it's so necessary. When someone wrote to me one day, we are in this life together, I puzzled. Yes, I know that's true. But sometimes allowing that truth to sink in deeper each day I participate in the body of Christ, it really challenges me. Uh, There was a time that I noticed Margaret and others on the staff would sign their emails, yours, Margaret. I'd read that and I'd puzzle some more. And I'd even quake a little bit. That simple word, yours, it says so much, doesn't it? I couldn't sign it back to her in response because, well, (laughs) then I'd have to declare and embrace a reality I wasn't certain about yet. Wouldn't you? That's what I thought. But the truth is, we belong to God, and therefore, because of that, we belong to each other, whether or not we're ready to acknowledge it. It's how we get through this life. We get through it together. First in Christ, and as a result of that, with each other in God's family. Recently, I was asked to write about my own spiritual formation to be published in the church newsletter, and I called it, I titled it, Spiritual Formation in the School of Hard Knocks. I included a brief description of how our lives were affected by the short life and death of our daughter, our Down syndrome daughter, Lily, 
And I wrote about how God mobilized his body at Blacknell mainly, but a few friends in my neighborhood and to help us to endure during that time. And they did this in really practical ways. Food, childcare, prayers, encouragements, visits. They came to Duke Hospital to the PICU. Have you ever been there? It's a desperate place sometimes. It's very dark because they're very sick and in many cases dying children all around you. And they came. Um, and I learned later, I did learn this, that few marriages survive the death of a child. Many of them end up in divorce because grief is viscerating those of you who have lost a child, whether physical, you know, uh, even miscarried a child. You know how viscerating that is. That grief has to go somewhere. And usually it ends up at the feet of your spouse, on the shoulder of your spouse. In grief, we blame. Who are we going to blame? The body of Christ helps us to endure that. That, that time was a real breakthrough, and it was the cracking open of our lives to our deep need for Christian friends and the fellowship of the body of Christ. And that's when I began to let people in, to let them be the tangible presence of God. They were his arms, his eyes, his words, because the storm was raging so fiercely. I couldn't hear God's voice not through prayer or any other engagement. We were being crushed, but not destroyed. And the body of Christ helped us to not be destroyed. Rosario was reading this book. I'm going to show it to you. And she lent it to me when she was done. It's Andrew Brunson's story. How many of you have a connection with him? Yes, Sherry. Yeah. And it was a, this story is very good. He's a Chapel Hill guy, and he was uh, imprisoned in Turkey for two years. He became a political pawn between Turkey and the United States. Many of you have a connection, some others around in the area, you have a connection to him and his family because he's in, in Chapel Hill, because they're from Chapel Hill, and I hope you get to read this book sometime. It's called God's Hostage. I want to read this short paragraph from this book to show you how Christian friendship, which was denied him most of the time, that man really, as you read, you'll read how he suffered. But occasionally, um, it was allowed. And it really helped him to endure at this terrible time in his life. And this is what he wrote. This is a paragraph from his book. He said this. He wrote this. Every prison makes its own rules with certain parameters. One of the most important differences from Sacron, Sacron, I can't say these names, it's the prisoner that he was in and he was moved to another, one called Buka. And he said, one of the most important differences is that Buka did not require me to write in Turkish. They had a guard who could read English and he was tasked with checking all my mail and coming and outgoing. This meant that others could now write to me. And, as a bonus, Robert from the consulate was able to bring typed notes to me on his visits. The prison checked them, and the guard got them to me within a day. And it was like a treasure each time. I would quickly scan the pages my wife Maureen had collated for me, and then pace myself and read them slowly over two days of 
three days and savored them. This made me think of Paul and all those years that he spent in prison reading and writing letters and how precious those letters were to him. But even more so, how precious his friends and companions were to him. And I think of how precious the notes of encouragement were to us during our hard times and how precious they still are when we receive them from you. The holy gifts that you share with us, we also share with you. So let me end with these words of Jesus because they are true and powerful and they proclaim who we are in Christ and they proclaim who we are to all the world. John thirteen thirty five, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you belong to me. Let's pray. Father God, make us to be friends and companions to one another as we travel through this life together. For we, as as that one person said to me then, we really are uh, in this life together. We are not alone. You flow through us to each other and you flow to us through one another and cord of those those friendships which are a cord of three strands of which you are the one made of steel. It is not easily broken. It is impregnable. It cannot be broken. And we pray that you would hold us together in Christ. Amen. Everyone, I put Lily's baby book on the back um, table because I was looking through it and you know what I found in there? A list of the names of people that were taking care of Will that week. It was the last week of August. She died August 14th, but you can see. And uh, there are many people. Nancy Grigg helped. There are tons of people. Tons of people that helped us so much. But I think you'll, you'll find it interesting to read that. And then please look through, if you wish, and see the people, especially uh, those that are, were present at Lily's uh, memorial service. Uh, you'll see us as young. We were young. But we... We were bonded during that time. We were bonded together. So, peace of